Chapter Twenty Six of Vera by Elizabeth von Arnhem. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty Six. He found her, however, very trying that night. The way she would keep on turning round, and it reached such a pitch of discomfort to sleep with her, or rather endeavor to sleep with her. For as the night went on, she paid less and less attention to his requests that she should keep still. And at two o'clock, staggering with sleepiness, he got up and went into a spare room, trailing the quilt after him and carrying his pillows, and finished the night in peace. When he woke at seven, he couldn't make out at first where he was or why. On stretching out his arm, he found no wife to be gathered in. Then he remembered, and he felt most injured, that he should have been turned out of his own bed. If Lucy imagined she was going to be allowed, to develop the same restlessness at night that was characteristic of her by day, she was mistaken. And he got up to go and tell her so. He found her asleep in a very untidy position, the clothes all dragged over to her side of the bed and pulled up round her. He pulled them back again, and she woke up, and he got into bed and said, Come here, stretching out his arm, and she didn't come. Then he looked at her more closely, and she, looking at him with heavy eyes, said something husky. It was evident she had a very tiresome cold. "'What an untruth you told me!' he exclaimed. "'About not having a cold in the morning!' She again said something husky. It was evident she had a very tiresome sore throat. "'It's getting on for half-past seven, said Wemyss. "'We've got to leave the house at nine sharp, mind.' Was it possible that she wouldn't leave the house at nine sharp? The thought that she wouldn't was too exasperating to consider. He go up to London alone, on this the first occasion of going up after his marriage. He be alone in Lancaster Gate, just as if he hadn't a wife at all. What was the good of a wife if she didn't go up to London with one? And all this to come upon him, because of her conduct on his birthday. Well, he said, sitting up in bed and looking down at her. I hope you're pleased with the result of your behavior. But it was no use saying things to somebody who merely made husky noises. He got out of bed and jerked up the blinds. Such a beautiful day, too, he said indignantly. When at a quarter to nine the station cab arrived, he went up to the bedroom, hoping that he would find her after all dressed and sensible and ready to go. But there she was, just as he had left her when he went to have his breakfast, dozing and inert in the tumbled bed. "'You'd better follow me by the afternoon train,' he said, after staring down at her in silence. "'I'll tell the cab. But in any case,' he said, as she didn't answer, "'in any case, Lucy, I expect you to-morrow.' She opened her eyes and looked at him languidly. "'Do you hear?' he said. She made a husky noise. "'Good-bye,' he said shortly, stooping and giving the top of her head a brief, disgusted kiss. The way the consequences of folly fell, always on someone else, and punished him, Wemyss could hardly give his times the proper attention in the train for thinking of it. That day Miss Entwhistle, aware of the return from the honeymoon on the Friday, and of the weekend to be spent at the Willows, and of coming up to Lancaster Gate early on the Monday morning for the inside of the week, waited till twelve o'clock, 
so as to allow plenty of time for Wemyss no longer to be in the house, and then telephoned. Lucy and she were to lunch together. Lucy had written to say so, and Miss Entwistle wanted to know if she wouldn't soon be round. She longed extraordinarily to fold that darling little child in her arms again. It seemed an eternity since she saw her radiantly disappearing in the taxi, and the letters she had hoped to get during the honeymoon hadn't been letters at all, but picture postcards. A man's voice answered her, not Wemyss's. It was, she recognized, the voice of the pale servant, who with his wife attended to the Lancaster Gate house. They inhabited the basement, and emerged from it up into the light only if they were obliged. Bells obliged them to emerge, and Wemyss's bath and breakfast, and after his departure to the office, the making of his bed. But then the shades gathered round them again till next morning, because for a long while now, once he had left the house, he hadn't come back till after they were in bed. His remarriage was going to disturb them, they were afraid, and the pale wife had forebodings about meals to be cooked. But at the worst, the disturbance would only be for the three days inside of the week, and anything could be borne when one had from Friday to Monday to oneself. And as the morning went on, and no one arrived from Storley, they began to take heart, and had almost quite taken it when the telephone bell rang. It didn't do it very often, for Wemyss had his other addresses, at the office, at the club, so that Twite, wanting in practice, was not very good at dealing with it. Also, the shrill bell vibrating through the empty house, so insistent, so living, never failed to agitate both Twites. It seemed to them uncanny, and Mrs. Twite, watching Twite being drawn up by it out of his shadows, like some quiet fish sucked irresistibly up to gasp at the surface, was each time thankful that she hadn't been born a man. She always went and listened at the bottom of the kitchen stairs, not knowing what mightn't happen to Twite up there alone with that voice, and on this occasion she heard the following. No, ma'am, not yet, ma'am. I couldn't say, ma'am. No, no news, ma'am. Oh, yes, ma'am, on Friday night. Yes, ma'am, first thing Saturday. Yes, it is, ma'am, very strange, ma'am. And then there was silence. He was writing, she knew, on the pad provided by Wemyss for the purpose. This was the most trying part of Twite's duties. Any message had to be written down and left on the hall table, complete with the time of its delivery, for Wemyss to see when he came in at night. Twite was not a facile writer. Words confused him. He was never sure how they were spelt. Also, he found it very difficult to remember what had been said, for there was a hurry and an urgency about a voice on the telephone that excited him and prevented his giving the message his undivided attention. Besides, when was a message not a message? Wemyss's orders were to write down messages. Suppose they weren't messages, must he still write? Was this, for instance, a message? He thought he had best be on the safe side, and laboriously wrote it down. Miss Henwhistle rang up, sir, to know if you was come, and if so, when you was coming, and what orders we had, and said it was very strange, twelve-fifteen. He had only just put this on the table, and was about to descend to his quiet shades, when off the thing started again. This time it was Wemyss. Back tonight, late as usual, he said. Yes, sir, said Twite. 
there's just been a but he addressed emptiness meanwhile miss entwhistle after a period of reflection was ringing up strawley nineteen the voice of chesterton composed and efficient replied and the effect of her replies was to make miss entwhistle countermand lunch and pack a small bag and go to paddington trains to strawley at that hour were infrequent and slow and it wasn't till nearly five that she drove down the oozy lane in the station cab and turning in at the white gate arrived at the willows that sooner or later she would have to arrive at the willows now that she was related to it by marriage was certain and she had quite made up her mind during her four weeks peace since the wedding that she was going to dismiss all foolish prejudices against the place from her mind and arrive at it when she did arrive with a stout heart and an unclouded countenance after all there was much in that mo of her nephews somebody has died everywhere yet as the cab heaved her nearer to the place along the oozy lane she did wish that it wasn't in just this house that lucy lay in bed also she had misgivings at being there uninvited in a case of serious illness naturally such misgivings wouldn't exist but the maid's voice on the telephone had only said mrs wemyss had a cold and was staying in bed and mr wemyss had gone up to london by the usual train it couldn't be much that was wrong or he wouldn't have gone hadn't she she thought uneasily as she found herself uninvited within wemyss's gates perhaps been a little impulsive yet the idea of that child alone in this sinister house she peered out of the cab window not at all sinister she said correcting herself severely all most neat perfect order shrubs as they should be strong railings nice cows the cab stopped chesterton came down the steps and opened its door nice parlour-maid most formal how is mrs wemyss asked miss entwhistle about the same i believe ma'am said chesterton and inquired if she should pay the man miss entwhistle paid the man and then proceeded up the steps followed by chesterton carrying her bag fine steps handsome house does she know i'm coming i believe the housemaid did mention it ma'am nice roomy hall with a fire it might be quite warm fine windows good staircase do you wish for tea ma'am no thank you i should like to go up at once if i may if you please ma'am at the turn of the stairs where the gong was miss entwhistle stood aside and let chesterton precede her perhaps you had better go and tell mrs wemyss i am here she said if you please ma'am miss entwhistle waited gazing at the gong with the same benevolence she had brought to bear on everything else fine gong she also gazed at the antlers on the wall for the wall continued to bristle with antlers right up to the top of the house magnificent collection if you please ma'am said chesterton reappearing tiptoeing gingerly to the head of the stairs miss entwhistle went up chesterton ushered her into the bedroom closing the door softly behind her miss entwhistle knew lucy was small but not how small till she saw her in the treble bed there really did appear to be nothing of her except a little round head why but you've shrunk was her first exclamation lucy who was tucked up to her chin by lizzie besides having a wet bandage encased in flannel round her throat could only move her eyes and smile she was on the side of the bed farthest from the door 
and Miss Entwhistle had to walk round it to reach her. She was still hoarse, but not as voiceless as when Wemyss left in the morning, for Lizzie had been diligently plying her with things, like hot honey, and her face, as her eyes followed Miss Entwhistle's approach, was one immense smile. It really seemed too wonderful to be with Aunt Dot again, and there was a peace about being ill, a relaxation from strain, that made her quiet day, alone in bed, seem sheer bliss. It was so plain that she couldn't move, and she couldn't do anything, couldn't get up and go in trains, that her conscience was at rest in regard to Everard. And she lay in the blessed silence after he left, not minding how much her limbs ached because of the delicious tranquillity of her mind. The window was open, and in the garden the birds were busy. The wind had dropped. Except for the birds there was no sound. Divine quiet. Divine peace. The luxury of it after the weekend, after the birthday, after the honeymoon, was extraordinary. Just to be in bed by oneself seemed an amazingly felicitous condition. "'Lovely of you to come,' she said hoarsely, smiling broadly, looking so unmistakably contented that Miss Entwhistle, as she bent over her and kissed her hot forehead, thought, "'It's a success. He's making her happy.' "'You darling little thing,' she said, smoothing back her hair. "'Fancy seeing you again like this.' "'Yes,' said Lucy, heavy-eyed and smiling. "'Lovely,' she whispered, "'to see you.' tea, Aunt Dot." It was evidently difficult for her to speak, and her forehead was extremely hot. "'No, I don't want tea. You'll stay?' "'Yes,' said Miss Entwhistle, sitting down by the pillow and continuing to smooth back her hair. "'Of course I'll stay. How did you manage to catch such a cold, I wonder?' She was left to wonder, undisturbed by any explanations of Lucy's. Indeed, it was as much as Lucy could manage to bring out the most necessary words. She lay contentedly with her eyes shut, having her hair stroked back, and said as little as possible. "'Everard,' said Miss Entwhistle, stroking gently, "'is he coming back to-night?' "'No,' whispered Lucy contentedly. Aunt Dot stroked in silence. "'Has your temperature been taken?' she asked presently. "'No.' whispered Lucy contentedly. "'Oughtn't you, after another pause, to see a doctor?' "'No,' whispered Lucy contentedly. Delicious, simply delicious, to lie like that, having one's hair stroked back by Aunt Dot, the dear, the kind, the comprehensible. "'So sweet of you to come,' she whispered again. "'Well,' thought Miss Entwhistle, as she sat there softly stroking, and watching Lucy's face of complete content while she dozed off. Even after she was asleep the corners of her mouth still were tucked up in a smile. It was plain that Everard was making the child happy. In that case he certainly must be all that Lucy had assured her he was, and she, Miss Entwhistle, would no doubt very quickly now get fond of him. Of course she would, no doubt whatever. And what a comfort, what a relief, to find the child happy. Backgrounds didn't matter where there was happiness. Houses, indeed. What did it matter if they weren't the sort of houses you would, left to yourself, choose, so long as in them dwelt happiness? What did it matter what their past had been, so long as their present was illuminated by contentment? And as for furniture, why, that only became of interest, 
of importance when life had nothing else in it loveless lives empty lives filled themselves in their despair with beautiful furniture if you were really happy you had antlers in this spirit while she stroked and lucy slept miss entwhistle's eye full of benevolence wandered round the room the objects in it after her own small bedroom in eaton terrace and its necessarily small furniture all seemed to her gigantic especially the bed she had never seen a bed like it before though she had heard of such beds in history didn't og the king of bashan have one and what an excellent plan for then you could get away from each other most sensible most wholesome and a certain bleakness about the room would soon go when lucy's little things got more strewn about her books and photographs and pretty dressing-table silver miss entwhistle's eye arrived at and dwelt on the dressing-table on it were two oval wooden-backed brushes without handles hair-brushes men's also shaving things and hanging over one side of the looking-glass were three neckties she quickly recovered most friendly most companionable but a feeling of not being in lucy's room at all took possession of her and she fidgeted a little with no business to be there whatever she was in a strange man's bedroom she averted her eyes from wemyss's toilet arrangements they were the last thing she wanted to see and in averting them they fell on the washstand with its two basins and on an enormous red-brown india-rubber sponge no such sponge was ever lucy's the conclusion was forced upon her that lucy and everard washed side by side from this too she presently recovered after all marriage was marriage and you did things in marriage that you would never dream of doing single she averted her eyes from the washstand the last thing she wanted to do was to become familiar with wemyss's sponge her eyes, growing more and more determined in their benevolence, gazed out of the window. How the days were lengthening, and really a beautiful lookout, with the late afternoon light reflected on the hills across the river, birds, too, twittering in the garden, everything most pleasant and complete. And such a nice big window, lots of air and light, it reached nearly to the floor. Two housemaids at least, and strong ones, would be needed to open or shut it ah no there were cords a thought struck her this couldn't be the room that couldn't be the window where she averted her eyes from the window and fixed them on what seemed to be the only satisfactory resting place for them the contented face on the pillow dear little loved face and the dear pretty hair how pretty young hair was so soft and thick no of course it wasn't the window that tragic room was probably not used at all now how in the world had the child got such a cold she could hear by her breathing that her chest was stuffed up but evidently it wasn't worrying her or she wouldn't in her sleep look so much pleased yes that room was either shut up now and never used or she couldn't help being struck by yet another thought it was a spare room if so miss entwhistle said to herself it would no doubt be her fate to sleep in it dear me she thought taken aback but from this also she presently recovered and remembering her determination to eject all prejudices 
merely remarked to herself, Well, well. And, after a pause, was able to add, benevolently, A house of varied interest. End of chapter 26